With our Bibles open to Acts chapter 2, a passage Pastor Dwight read just a little bit ago, we come to what the world comes to today, and that is Pentecost Sunday. When you think of Pentecost, you may have something come to your mind that is unique to you, perhaps. Or maybe it's unique to your family, or maybe it's part of your heritage and your history. Maybe you're part of a Pentecostal denomination, and so you, you think of that. And so you have all kinds of thoughts that may go through your mind when you think of Pentecost. When you read Acts chapter 2, you read about some of the profound and prolific things that are happening here, and we think about the epic, euphoric reality of that day. It would have been interesting and awesome to have been there to experience a powerful demonstration on the day that the Holy Spirit was given to the church. But Pentecost, really, in its origin, is a name to describe something totally different. It did not just get its name then but it had its name before that. It was a wheat offering that would be given when you were getting ready to receive the wheat, the crop, you would bring the first fruits of your offering and you would bring them to the priest. And as the video just showed, you, you would come from all these different places. So all the God-fearing Jews from all over the place, they would come together into Jerusalem and they would offer this wheat this wheat would be given as a cereal offering, and they would sacrifice a lamb. And this was Pentecost. And they would wave sheaves of wheat in front of God, if you will, the priest would, as an offering, giving thanks for the harvest you were about to receive. That was Pentecost Sunday. 70 AD, the temple was destroyed and the sacrificial system was destroyed. So things changed just a little bit, and the emphasis of that day was changed a little, to now commemorate the time when Moses would be given the law. So there was celebration over Moses being given the law, and so there was recognition of that on Pentecost Sunday, or Pentecost as they knew it, but what we recognize as Pentecost Sunday. Jesus knew all of this. He knew that he could have the most people at the most place at the same time without having to pay motel room, <laughs> didn't have to feed them, they would all be there anyway because this is what they were required and what they would do. So they would be coming into Jerusalem. How many of you have ever been to Jerusalem? So they have gone into Jerusalem and as they are in Jerusalem, he says to his followers, there are now 120 of them that he is speaking to, to say, I want you to, there were more followers, but these 120, he says, I want you to go into an upper room over here, and I want you to stay there until the Father will send you the Holy Spirit. So they go over and they go into an upper room. Now, an upper room, there's nothing sacred specifically about that. There's nothing that is very mystical about that. It is a room that is above the house or the business, and it's a big room without a lot of walls. It is the upper room where you could have a large gathering together. And so they would go into this upper room. So now they have 120 of them in the upper room. So Jesus has gone back to heaven. The crucifixion's already over. The resurrection's over. He has talked to his disciples, proven his resurrection, and now he has gone back to heaven. And he has asked the Father to send the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, the Teacher, who will come and live in us, all believers. And so when he goes back into heaven, they're gathered together in this upper room, and as they're gathered in this upper room, the Holy Spirit comes. And it's a rushing wind it's a real gale that comes into the room. And, and nobody can mistake, there's something happening here. Now that's invisible, but you could feel that wind. The Holy Spirit's invisible, but we can know when he's here. 
So he comes into the room. And so the visible reality of this was that they had these, these fires, tongues of fire, land on each one of them. And they're all filled with the Holy Spirit. This is an absolutely powerful, powerful moment as the early church is being formed in these moments. Now, when I would read and study this as a kid, I would get so ex excited. And as a young person, I would get so excited thinking about all that is going on. But listen to what's happening here. In verse 5, look at what it says. Acts 2 verse 5, they've got people from every nation under heaven, as the video just described. Every nation is there in Jerusalem. This was a strategic time that the Father would be sending the Holy Spirit. All of the crowd is gathered around, and then you have the rushing mighty wind, and you have the tongues of fire landing on each one of them, and they're all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, you can't be filled with the Holy Spirit and something not happen to you. There's something going to happen to you. And what happened to them was they left that upper room in Jerusalem, and they went out into the streets. And as they go out into the streets, the people think they're drunk because they have been filled with the Holy Spirit, and they're just, it's an unusual expression and experience for them. This is absolutely amazing. It is wonderful. And so as they're filled with the Holy Spirit, they're going out. And the people are amazed because all of these guys who would be from this region are able to speak in a dialect that all of those people from the various places and dialects were able to speak. And it was a miracle. And they're speaking in these languages that these people could understand. And they are explaining the powerful story of our Lord. Now, what did Jesus say? <clears throat> what did Jesus say in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 would happen to them? Here's what he said. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my, here's what you're going to have the power to do, to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You're going to be able to go everywhere, all the time, all places, all situations, and be able to experience a power and presence of the Holy Spirit who's going to be able to radiate through your life, through your witness, through your testimony, and you are going to be witnesses of Jesus Christ. This is what you're going to be doing. So the Holy Spirit comes not just so we can look awesome or just so we can draw attention to ourselves, but the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence in every believer, get a load of this, that we might be able to lift up Jesus Christ. Can I get a witness in the house somewhere? That's good preaching, Kev. Keep going. So what ends up happening is the flame of the early church, as we sang a bit ago, was lit. And the early church begins to be formed as Jesus is back in heaven, but the Holy Spirit, His Spirit, God's Spirit, part of the Trinity, as we say the Apostles' Creed, we believe in God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. He is living inside everyone who calls on Him. Now, if you've ever gone to a youth camp or you've ever gone to a spiritual service like we had a few Thursday nights ago where you leave the place walking on air and you're leaving a place and the Holy Spirit is, is palpable in the moment in the, in the ministry and, and even today he's here and he's with us and, and you sense this. And, but then you have to go back home, right? And you go back home to live your everyday life in your workaday world. So what relevance is the Holy Spirit in that context? But I want to look at what these 120 had going on in them before we take a real hard look at the culture around them because I want to go beyond Acts chapter 2 when they received the Holy Spirit into the first, second, and third century and see how they lived out the presence of the Holy Spirit in everyday life because it gets really, really interesting when you do that. 
Because you and I aren't called just to stand in here and worship or sit in here or to wave our hand or to sing the praises or to praise God as we do. We're not just called to do that. We got to go out and live an everyday life. So they had several things happening to them. They had purpose. He, he said, I want you to wait. I want you to receive. And I want you to go. They also had prayer. They were prayerful people. They were praying and they were believing God. And as they prayed and as they believed in God, their heart aligned with God's will. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And then they had purity. They were in one accord. They were Honda people. They were in one accord in one place and they received the Holy Spirit and they had power. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. This is power. What were they filled with the Holy Spirit to do? Well, you're going to get the gifts of the Spirit. You're going to get the graces of the Spirit. Another message, another day. But I say, there is no ignoring them. You're going to receive whatever the Holy Spirit chooses to give you. You'll get all of the fruit, but whatever of the gifting. So we don't despise anybody else that has a gift different than ours. We acknowledge we're all part of the body the Scripture would teach us. And so we celebrate whatever the Lord gives to you because it is what the church needs. It's what the body needs. It is that. So he gives them the power. Listen to this. The power to live out a Christian life and to share the gospel, and here we go now into the first, second, and third century, to live out even in the face of persecution. And that's where it doesn't get fun. That's where it's not fun at all. The first, second, and third century world was really influenced by the Roman Empire. And Christians were not popular with culture or even their family. You see, a lot of people had gods that they worshipped that were part of the culture, lowercase g. And so they had these images around their house and they would worship them as a family. And so what ends up happening is if you're worshipping those as a family, everybody on the same page is not a problem. But then whenever somebody comes to God through faith in Christ and their life is made right before him, You've got a problem because now you're not just going to be worshiping these other gods. You're going to worship the one and only God. You see that conflict? You're getting ready to go against the current of your family. You're getting ready to go against the current of the place where you work. You're getting ready to go against all society around you. You're getting ready to go against that because now you believe in the one God. Everybody else has these other lowercase gods. You believe in the one capital G God, the God of the universe. You believe in him. So they've had this great Pentecost, but now they all go back to their homes in their various countries now, saved, baptized, and filled with the Holy Spirit. And as they go back into this, they have to realize that they've got this situation going on. First, second, third century Christians here, they had zero political leverage. Christians were not popular. They had zero political leverage. None whatsoever. If all political leverage was gone to the Christian community today, if everything was gone from us, would you still have a message of hope? Would you still have a gospel in Jesus Christ? You have to make up your mind about that. We don't serve him just because the culture allows us to. We serve him because we want to. And they didn't serve him because it was popular. They served him because they wanted to. They knew what was around them wasn't working and wasn't going to work, but they knew that through him, everything would come together. And in the end, they wanted to be on his team. So they said, I may not be popular. I may not be cool. You may not like or love me. I don't care. Even in my home, I'm going to choose to go with God. Amen. Mm. First, second, third century here was a world. You can clap if you want. That's fine. I don't care. You won't make me nervous. 
I've had people get really excited when I preach before. In some parts of the country, people know how to respond to this kind of teaching, and they get all wound up, and I like to hear them. America is fast becoming a post-Christian culture. Many people believe in our culture today that you have to support their idea, and if you don't, you're wrong to the point of exclusion and to the point of diminishing you and intimidating you and bullying you and calling you out. It's happening in our culture right now. It'll happen this week. Popular rhetoric in our culture today believes that Christians are the problem. Not everyone, but popular culture. And it has happened because a lot of people in America used to believe that God was outside us and all of us had to answer to God. Even if we didn't understand Him, we understood we had to answer to Him at the end. And we, we realized He was bigger than us, smarter than us, and we had a problem. We really need to go to Him. Now popular culture says, no, you are God. God is within you. And the problem with sin is you should never tell me that I am a sinner. You're the problem telling me I'm a sinner. That's popular culture in our world in which we live. First century church had no community authority, none. They were looked at with disdain, yet the church grew, and it grew exponentially because people knew what around them wasn't working. Jesus said this to Peter. He says, Peter, he says, I want to talk to you, and he said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. They will not overcome it. And we're in a character series looking at people of the Bible and learning lessons from them. And as we look at Peter's life, we begin to realize that God is doing something unusual with him. And let's go back and look at Peter just for a moment. His brother Andrew has followed John the baptizer, John the Baptist. And as he followed him, John the Baptist looks at Jesus in John chapter 1 and said, Look, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. Andrew and others began to follow after Jesus. Jesus turned to them and said, what do you want? They said, we want to stay with you. We want to learn from you. Would you teach us whatever we need to know about the way? Because John the Baptist has told us you are the way. You're the Lamb of God. You're the Messiah. We want to know all about it. And he became convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. And so he goes over to his brother, who they tell us was in northern part of Galilee, a wealthy fisherman, and he goes over to Peter and he says, Peter, we have found the Messiah, your Bible says. And Peter says, hey, let me know about it. And he comes boogity, 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 boogity over to Jesus. And when he gets to Jesus, Jesus looks at him and he says to him, he says, I see you as you are, but I also see you as you could be, as you shall be. Aren't you glad for that? That Jesus doesn't just look at us as we are, but he looks at us as we can be. And he says, man, if you'll just let me in, if you'll just, if you'll just come follow me, if you'll just open your heart to me, if you'll open your mind to me, if you'll let me teach you the way, are you kidding me? Something begins to happen in the life of Peter, and he says, I want to follow you. Now, Peter thought he would follow Christ all the days of his life, and he would be part of the earthly kingdom and the political system Jesus would be setting up. But Jesus said, I haven't come to set up a political system. Because Peter, he in the garden wants to whack off the ear of the soldier. He really wants to get his neck and knock his head off. He wants to, and the guy dodges, the guy loses his ear. Jesus puts it on the holy super glue, and he says, you are healed. And, and Jesus goes on from that moment, and Peter says, I would never deny you. But before the rooster would crow three times, guess what Peter did? He denies Jesus. He did it three times. And he wept bitterly. Have you ever denied Jesus? Feels bad, doesn't it? Only way I know is because I have. 
I've had to say, forgive me. Forgive me. Forgive me. After the resurrection, Jesus looks at Peter and he says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Three, you count them. I think for each of those denials, he says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? So Peter wouldn't worry anymore in the future. He knows he loves Jesus. I don't know how many times Jesus has spoken, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? To me or to you. But he's making sure we know we love him. He's forgiven us. And so it is that person who is standing up here on the day of Pentecost of all people. Could you, wouldn't you have picked somebody else? I mean, somebody, anybody? No, Jesus picked him. And he picks you, and he picks you, and he picks you, and he picks you, and he picks all of us. And he says, I want you. You can be on the team. You're part of it. And so Jesus says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In a modern secularism, that is pervading our culture today. It says the problem is Christianity. But we know what the Scripture says to us. Romans 3 and 23. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God and we all need a Savior. And I draw some insights from others. And I want to look at that first, second, third century. When they, had, they went out of this day of Pentecost, they had to live out their life. I'm going to look at five quick traits. Here's the first one. The early church. Let's look at some of their traits. Here's one of them. They were multi-ethnic. They were multi-ethnic. They believed in racial justice and equality of the gospel. To whatever degree they believed this. Look at Acts chapter 2 and verse 39. Peter is preaching the message, telling them about Christ, and he says, the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off. I like that part, for all who are far off. We used to have an expression, far out, man, far out, dude, but this is saying to the people who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Everybody he will call. That means you and me. So Andrew in John 12 brings the Greek folks to Jesus. In Acts chapter 10, Peter evangelizes to the Italian guy, Cornelius. So they go beyond just the Jewish house, don't they? In Galatians chapter 3, it says it this way in verse 28. The apostle Paul writes and he says, For there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female. For listen to this, you are all one in Christ Jesus. Can I get a witness in the house? That's where it's at right there. That's where it's at. And the early church understood this. You know why we've been gathering during 2020? We did the analytics, and when we did the analytics on our website, where we had been and who had been here, who came to Cherryville without maybe ever driving here? You know, we had 1,380 cities from around the world that were here, New York, Chicago, Memphis, Boston, Beijing, Amsterdam, San Jose, Los Angeles, Dallas, to name a few, and Allentown and others. 1,380. You know, we had 97 countries that visited in here. China, India, Canada, Japan, United Arab Emirates, Brazil, France, Germany, Nigeria, around the world on the website. And some are watching and may be watching right now. And we welcome you from around the world. People that might not be able. Right here in the scripture it says 
that he is going to pour out his spirit on all flesh and the message is going to be spread around the world in the last days. Let me tell you something. If there's any indicator of this, it is that the message is going around the world and it's getting everywhere all over the world. And it is absolutely amazing what God is choosing to do. And it's, it's not just all happening with this church, of course. No, we're just one little spot in the world. And we're not all that in and of ourselves or nothing. But through him, it's his message. And he can change anybody who will call on his name. And that's what I love about what is going on. God is up to something, and we get to be a part of it. Isn't that humbling? Isn't that exciting? We get to be a part of that in the life in which we live. So they were interested in the world around. They were also oriented to the poor. They had economic justice. Let me say it very clearly. Another message, another day. It was not a communistic form of equality. It was not a socialist form of equality. All you have to do is read the parable of the talents and realize that Jesus modeled that talent after capitalism, not socialism. Otherwise, they would all have three talents. They had a different ratio, didn't they? And at the end, look what he did. He takes from the guy who has one and he gives to the guy who had the most. Completely opposite of what culture would suggest to us today. So I want to get clear that it wasn't talking about that. So what is it talking about? In James chapter 1 and verse 27, the epistle of James, he writes it this way. Religion that God our Father accepts is pure and faultless. It is this. To look after the orphans and the widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted in the world. Leave it up. Please. Look at what it says. Pure religion and faultless religion. God accepts that. And what is it? He says here, I want you to remember the orphans and to remember the widows. And this week, they have been part of my prayer focus. Orphans and widows. In their distress. Take care of them, church. That's what he's saying. And one of the beautiful things we have done at this church is we made sure that we have been an outward enough focused church that whenever some of our folks get up here and ask for offerings, they say, so we can continue to be an influence in our community. I assure you, we're still paying the mortgage on this building too. We're still paying salaries. We're still paying insurance. We're still paying electric bill. But I will assure you as well, we are out in the world reaching around us and making a significant impact. We don't tout it all from the rooftops, but we are making a significant impact. And it's beautiful to be able to do that. But let me tell you what else. In that last phrase of that, it says, and keep yourself from being polluted in the world. Now, now I want you to understand what the world they lived in. They lived in a culture influenced by the Romans. If you're tracking with me and if you've studied any history, you know what that might mean. The lady had to be loyal to her man, but her man did not have to be loyal to her. He could have her as his wife. She had to be faithful sexually to him. He could have sex with his servants and with the children. A very polluted world. And what James is reminding the listener to do, he says, remember the orphan and the widow, but we are Christians and followers of Christ, so you keep yourself from getting polluted with that type of filth and any other type of filth that you might exploit these people because we don't do it that way. I am. <laughs> Thanks for the encouragement. Now, there's a third thought, and that is this. They were, they were conciliatory. They were willing to talk and build bridges. Are you? Let 
willing to talk and build bridges. Jesus from the cross, you know what he says? You know what he says? He's up here on the cross, and you know what he says? He says this. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. What would you have said from the cross? We're not God, of course, so we couldn't imagine like he would, right? But he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's hard for me to get my head around. Someone cuts me off at the intersection. I don't say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. (laughs) Much less nail you to a cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's That's conciliatory. Stephen is being stoned to death, first martyr of the faith. You know what he says? Don't hold this sin to their charge, Acts chapter 7 or 60. We've got some growing to do to be like them. Peter is restored gently and greatly to where he is used as a spokesperson at Pentecost. That's conciliatory. Saul was persecuting the church and he was absolutely annihilating the church, arresting and putting people down. Christians were scared of him. First, second, third century people, they had a lot to work with, didn't they? And these people in the first century were afraid of him. And all of a sudden he he is on the road to Damascus, ready to arrest more Christians. You know the story, the bright light, the gospel comes to him. He sees Jesus in in the whole episode of transformation, and by the way, seeing Jesus was one of the four qualifications being taught by him to be an apostle. So he was being taught by him, and so he saw, and he's like, oh my stars, and he realizes it's Jesus, and, and then he goes to the street called Street, remember? And then the word of the Lord comes to Ananias, the prophet, and when the word of the Lord comes to Ananias, a prophet in a vision says, I want you to go over here to be with Saul, and he's like, well, what, 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 what you talking about? He didn't want to go over there and be with him. No, because he was, am I having problems? Did I eat roast beef last night? Because I could do it. Pizza, oh, Lord, help me here. What is, and the Lord convinced him he needed to go over there. And so what did he do? He went over there and he walks into the room and your Bible says, he says, brother Saul. <laughs> wow, man, oh me, that's incredible. Because just that little phrase talks about the mighty transformation of the most Impressive guy, really, in the New Testament, other than Jesus, Paul. He's transformed. Wow. That's conciliatory. Leave room for you U-turn. A fourth trait of the early church we'll look at. There are many. Here are just some. Sexual purity. Sexual purity. They believed sex was only to be experienced between a man and a woman in marriage. A man and a woman in marriage. That's how they believed it. But they were in a very sexually perverted culture. In Paul's day, he could come out of a temple, walk out in a courtyard, walkway, and just across the way, not any further than from me to the back row, there would be a house of prostitutes. first century church. Men in the Roman culture lived a very promiscuous life without restraint. There's a fifth characteristic and that is this. They were pro-life against infanticide and abortion. In Matthew chapter 2 
Jesus was preserved as a baby from Herod. The culture looked at the children with disdain and even the disciples thought some of the kids were being annoying one day and they were getting the kids away and Jesus said, no, 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 let the little kids come to me. And then he said, instead of, this is what he was saying, instead of being like all the pompous people you see around you that run around trying to act all spiritual, you've got to become humble like these little guys that come in here just like you are, snotty nose, spaghetti sauce all over their mouth. You've got to just become like them if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, you just come in, the ground is so stinking level at the cross. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The early church would go out to the dump where the Roman men had discarded little kids they were finished with, had used them up, and often it would be the girls. And they would get them and retrieve them, and they would adopt children like them into their home and raise them up Christian. Raise them up Christian. Some of you maybe need to open your home in a foster setting. Some of you maybe could open your home in an adoption setting. If God calls you, do it. If he doesn't, don't. But if he calls you, you might want to think about doing that type of thing. I don't know your story, but God does. And they raised them up. And a lot of the boys were raised up in the Roman culture. And so in 1 Peter, when Peter says to the, to the people, he says to the, to the ladies, you're a Christian and you're marrying somebody who is not a believer. You don't need to divorce them. You could stay with them and convert them. So when you go home and you're worshiping your uppercase God, and they're worshiping these lowercase g gods, you by your life will be able to win them by living an example of Christ before them that they don't know otherwise. This is absolutely powerful. And the apostle Paul taught it this way about sexual living. Their culture didn't know. And our culture today is just as tainted. It doesn't seem to have a clue. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 18, flee sexual immorality. There's a word we don't use a lot. It's called fornication. That's the that's word it is here. And it says your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Bishop T.D. Jakes puts it this way. I think it's well said and very understandable. You tell them no ring, no sex. I could give you more scripture, but I'll keep cruising here. Genesis chapter 2, down around verse 21, God made us male and female. Verse 24, he says, he wants you to leave your father and mother and set up your own home. You come together in, in a marriage as a husband and a wife. Verse 24 talks about in your passage in Genesis 2, that you unite with your spouse and verse 24 says, you become one flesh sexually and enjoy it. It's for your enjoyment and procreation, recreation. It's to be enjoyed. Talk about it, celebrate it, have fun with it. God made it. It's one of his greatest creations. Grand slam. But in that context. And then we're married for life. That's what he wants. He wants us to marry for life. So I just gave you five things about the early church is sort of interesting. They had these characteristics in a culture that was very unhinged and immoral. No God value. So watch this. Watch this. 
it's quiet in here, and I think it's a holy quiet. The first two traits, multi-ethnic, oriented to the poor, are Democrat talking points in our culture today. The last two, pro-life and sexual purity, tend to be Republican talking points in our culture today. And the fifth one, the middle one, conciliatory, doesn't sound like either group today. But the early church, listen, if you're listening, say yes. yes. The early church had all five. And they changed their world. I asked you at the beginning, if you could not make headway politically, would you still follow Jesus? I'm talking deep commitment level stuff. We have a chance to make a difference, but if you didn't, our world needs Jesus and the Holy Spirit comes and we might be witnesses of Him. Wherever we go, I want to ask you, are you an undercover Christian? Or is there enough evidence to convict you if you were tried? I don't know. Only you can answer that. We've been looking at Peter, his life. How did he end up? What happened to Pete? Started out hearing about the Messiah, didn't he? Waffled, bailed, came back, stood up, proclaimed, yada yada ying, Jesus is the one you crucified. Acts 2 is a powerful message, one of the most powerful in all the Bible. The day the Holy Spirit came and he was on him and he just, he was smoking hot with it. And then they, by the time you reach Acts 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, persecution hits and it's like, now Lord, behold their threats. Oh, okay. What would happen? We understand through tradition that Peter, at the end, if you read the epistle like chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, 4, 5 of, of Peter and then it's 2 Peter, he says, you be ready against persecution that's coming your way. You be ready. Be ready. And he says, stand strong. Keep looking to God. So persecution came his way, and he was crucified for his faith in Jesus Christ. This is a guy who denied Christ. Now he's crucified. And he said, don't hang me like you hung my Lord. Upright. Flip me upside down and hang me upside down because I'm not worthy to be hung right side. That's somebody to understand mercy and grace at a level I have not yet come to. Hang me upside down. He went in the face of his culture and I've got a feeling when we get to heaven one of the spokespeople we're going to be hearing from <laughs> leading one of the seminars is going to be Peter. I can't wait to get there. I think I'm just going to stare at him. He gets criticized a lot, but I tell you what, I thank God for him because I know a little bit about that kind of guy. Wow. And you look so pompous and so cool and so awesome in here today, but the fact is you're just like me and just like these Bible people. 
you got some flaws up in here somewhere. <laughs> and truth be told, we need a Savior. And so does the person down the hall and the person in the next cubicle and the person at the gas station and the person at your school and the person in your neighborhood and the person living under your roof not named you. It's somebody else. We all need Jesus. Yes. Now, how many of you have ever heard a long-winded preacher? You've heard a long-winded preacher? I preached a 19-year message with you. I just give you about 30 minutes every week. And that's a long sermon. Uh, very long. But I thank you for being so kind and listening so well. What do you have for us on a closing song? Christ is enough? Well, why don't you come lead us in that? He is enough. Let's stand, please. Lord, we thank you for this privilege of gathering in your name and now singing this song. We thank you for Pentecost and for the cross and now for the Holy Spirit who is in us to give us a power to live out an abundant life for you. Lord, I pray that in this world it is so crazy and topsy-turvy now and it's so unhinged, how else do we say, so evil, so ungodly that you would help us to not lose our moorings as followers of you. For you have planned for our victory and we too too in your name.